Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the Book of Romans, The Progress of the Gospel, with a message entitled, Kept Promises. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld. Pastor Eric Holstrand tells the story of what happened in his congregation. He's in the middle of preaching a sermon with an elderly woman, her name was Mary, fainted and hit her head on the side of a pew. Looked very serious. The church service came to an abrupt halt as she lay on the ground completely unconscious. An ambulance showed up and they put dear Mary onto a stretcher and they raised it up onto its wheels and got ready to wheel her out the door. You know, at that point, Mary, who had weakly gained her consciousness, motioned for her daughter to come over. And because Mary looked so bad, her daughter thought she was giving her her final words, and she leaned over to hear her mother's faint words, and they were these. Honey, make sure you put in my offering. It's in my purse. See, I love to hear stories of people who have made promises and keep them, and and no hardship and no bump on the head and no unforeseen problem will keep them from keeping their word. When David wrote Psalm 15, he wanted to describe the person who would dwell on God's holy hill, stand before God with integrity. And he lists 10 things, 10 important traits for everyone who would stand before the Lord. And here's one of the 10. It's found in verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You see, anyone can keep promises when it's in our interest or advantage to do so, or when it doesn't create a major inconvenience or even cause suffering. But how many of us keep promises when it actually hurts us to keep them? When the only thing that makes us keep them is a reflection of our own personal integrity. And that, says David, is the mark of the person who stands on God's holy hill. Imagine a world where people kept promises. What would that be like? Well, for one, I think there'd be fewer lawyers. No fine print, no escape clause contracts. A handshake would be enough. You know, I'm told, and I think it was the Bronfmans who built a major section of downtown Toronto, and they did it all on the strength of a handshake. Untold millions of dollars, and they were as good as their word. Now, if that's true, it's a remarkable story. Well then, if God values kept promises in us, even when it's inconvenient and demands sacrifice and pain, how much more so do you think God values his own promises? In fact, isn't that what we're counting on? See, whenever I've done a funeral for a believer who trusted in Christ, I recount the eternal promises of a God who always keeps them. And how do we know that God keeps his promises? Well, for one, we need to look at those promises that God has made that can be verified. And so today, I want to recount some of the promises God made to Israel. Did he keep them or did he break them? So let me take you to the promise God made specifically to Israel recorded in Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now that seems pretty straight up, doesn't it? But what if Israel turns from God? Well, let's listen to Psalm 89, verses 30 to 37. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules... If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter my word that went forth from my lips. 
Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness to the skies. Now, here's what God promised Israel. Although individual Jews, because of their refusal to trust God, would lose their advantage and would be eternally condemned for their sins, but God would keep all the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would establish his heritage among them forever. Now, with the coming of Christ, this promise was put to the test. Israel, at least the majority, rejected their Messiah. And it would have been very easy for God to reject Israel, but God keeps his promises. In our study of Romans 9 to 11, we left off with Romans 10, 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. See, the image is of a father holding open his arms to embrace Israel, but Israel rejects him when they rejected their Messiah. Jesus said the very same thing recorded in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. And just as Jesus predicted, and just as the psalmist warned, the Roman emperor Titus marched into Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70, slaughtered the Jews, burned the city with fire, and did not leave one stone left on top of another. And so we come back to Romans 10.21. God is holding out his hands to his disobedient people, and each one of us should in effect be holding our breath because, in fact, if you're counting on God's promises, then this is the most severe test. His promises to Israel are the test case as to whether God can be trusted. And from this now, let me give you five reasons why God has not abandoned the Jews. Here's the first of them, Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. See, Paul himself was, as he calls himself in Philippians 3, verse 5, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Immersed in the Judaism of his day, Paul undertook a campaign of persecution against the church, following the new Christians everywhere he could and placing them in prison. Paul was there in the scene of the first Christian martyrdom, and he readily gave his approval. Paul didn't just reject Christianity. He hated Christ. He was violent. Yet in spite of his hatred of his Messiah, or should I say, notwithstanding his hatred of Christ, Christ met him right in the center of his activities as a persecutor of the church and called him to himself. And this Hebrew of Hebrews, in an amazing twist of irony, became the missionary to the Gentiles, proclaiming them included in the family of God. And he's also the author of half of our New Testament. And so Paul sets forth the first reason he knows that God has not rejected his people. He says, look at me. I'm a Jew, and I received mercy. And from that, I think I can make an observation. See, reason one as to why we know that God keeps his promises and has not abandoned the Jews is that there remains a remnant of Israel that still calls upon him. Let me help all of us here who believe that the story of God's dealings with Israel is over and has been supplanted by his work among the Gentiles. 
Our Bible is an entirely Jewish book. Our Savior is a first century Jew. Our hope is the hope of Israel. Our desire is to stand before the God of Israel. The 12 apostles of Jesus were all Jews. The church of which we are a part was founded on its first day, and it was made entirely by Jews. The entire story of Christ's death on our behalf is told in the context of the Jewish system of sacrifice. Easter is the meaning of Yom Kippur. In the final day, when we see him who is seated on the throne, we will recognize that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is a Jew. For all of those who are anti-Semitic, you might want to reflect on that. Might I also say that this is the overwhelming evidence that God has not abandoned the Jews, but is even today keeping his promises. That gives me a great deal of confidence. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Let's keep following Paul's line of reasoning. I'm reading Romans 11 verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And I, for one, love that word, foreknew. Let me help us understand that word. For some of us, and we all take the word as if God knows the future, and that's true, he does. Nothing catches God by surprise. He never says, as we do, wow, look at that. Nothing surprises God. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing leaves him having to make contingency plans. God has never gone to plan B. And it's precisely here in, in God's foreknowledge and in the fact that the future is completely laid out before God that Paul teaches us the final implication of foreknowledge. Romans 8:29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So according to Paul, foreknowledge and predestination are perfectly wrapped together in one. This means, please hear me, that God does nothing spontaneously. All his actions, and here there can be no exceptions, are planned out from before time began. And that includes his future plans for Israel. So that means that God never changes his plans, and therefore, he always keeps his promises. Well, we'll continue with Dr. Neufeld in just a moment. You know, I have to mention a very special ministry opportunity today. Dr. Neufeld, after sharing his one-week series on the Psalms, Finding Forgiveness, believes the need for understanding forgiveness is so essential that there are so many walking through life carrying the burden of unforgiven sin that we not only want to offer you one copy of this series on CD, but at your request, a second copy to offer someone you might know that needs to know forgiveness is possible. New joy is possible through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take this special opportunity today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. There never have been, nor will there be in the future, a detour or some unexpected development in God's management of all things. You know, down the road, we're going to completely reject the idea that since Israel rejected God, he went to the Gentiles. I call this Plan B theology. It's just wrong. So then this leads us back to chapter 11, verse 2. When God called Abraham and then Israel to be his chosen people, God had at that point foreknown Israel's rebellion and was determined that this rebellion was for his glory and the advancement of the gospel. 
Now, I have promised five reasons why we know that God has not abandoned the Jewish people. The first was that he still reserved a remnant among them for himself. Here now is the second. God's calling is irrevocable. Well, let's get ahead of ourselves and read Romans 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, and that means also the calling of Israel. Now, let's go to the third reason we know that God has not rejected his people. God's dealings are always consistent, and they're constant. Let's read Romans 11, 2-4. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, Paul takes us back to the ministry of Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. In these chapters, we encounter the prophet ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel has set up two centers of idolatrous worship and has destroyed the priesthood. Elijah, in a daring act of bravery, stands up and predicts that God will punish Israel and there will be a total of drought, no rain for three years. This leads in the end to a famine that is so severe that starvation ensues. The king of Israel, a bloodthirsty tyrant by the name of Ahab, concludes that he's going to kill Elijah. And in the meantime, Ahab's vicious wife Jezebel begins killing all the prophets of God. You know, at that time, if you had lived there, you would have concluded that the worship of the God of Abraham was dead in Israel. And then in this amazing act of unprecedented courage, Elijah invites the prophets of the pagan god Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. 450 pagan priests show up representing Baal, and only Elijah, on the other hand, represents the Lord. Elijah's challenge is simple. Let's build two altars, one for the Lord and one for Baal, and we will see who is God. And you know what happened? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob showed up and demonstrated that he alone is God. And after that, Elijah runs for his life, knowing that Jezebel has her agents everywhere looking to assassinate him. And by 1 Kings 19, verse 14, we find Elijah in a cave. He's a refugee. He's tired. He's afraid. He's depressed. And he's complaining. The Bible says, and he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. You know, sometimes God is brisk with us. He doesn't like Elijah's pity party. This is nonsense and out of touch with reality. He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 in Israel, all who have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, I have maintained a remnant. Things are not as bad as they've seemed, and I am not done with Israel. Now, here's why we know that God has not abandoned Israel consistently and constantly through 2,000 years, from Abraham to Jesus, God in every single generation of the Jews acted in just such a manner. That is, in fact, God's specific identifying mark. I understand that when an engineer or an architect designs a building, he's always going to leave a mark somewhere specific to him and to his designs. It indicates that this is his work and not someone else's. Same is true of a painting. In the corner, you'll find the artist placing his or her signature, identifying the painting with their own genuine work. 
In the same way, this very picture of of God reserving a people for himself among a disobedient majority is God's mark throughout the history of the Jews. So, five reasons we know that God has not abandoned his people. One, to this day he reserves a remnant. Two, God's calling is irrevocable. Three, God has placed an identifying mark on his care for his elect. And now, four, God's actions are observable. Look at Romans 11, verse 5. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In other words, Paul is saying that today, the situation with Israel is no different than the time of Elijah. It would, from one standpoint, be completely false to say that Israel has rejected the Messiah. Paul didn't. Peter didn't. James didn't. The church in Jerusalem made completely of Jews didn't. The fact that Jews made up a large portion of all the Christian churches mentioned in the New Testament means that there was always a remnant. Paul is saying, don't take up Elijah's lament and say, I alone am left. Just take a look at what God is doing. He is today keeping his promises to Israel. Now, it needs to be said that we simply don't know how many Jewish believers there are in the world today. I do know that Israel has taken a very dim view of Jews who convert to Christianity. I do know that there are two different approaches that Jewish believers often take. One approach simply says that Jewish believers must take their place within the wider body of the Christian church. And another approach called Messianic Judaism argues that Jewish Christians form Messianic synagogues, which confess Jesus as the Messiah, but also hold the traditional practices of Judaism, like the Sabbath and the recitation of the traditional Jewish prayers. It is estimated that there may be some 100,000 Jewish believers in such bodies in North America and another such 10,000 in Israel. Well, however many there are, I, I find myself amazed at how often I'm going to bump into someone who is Jewish and a believer in Jesus, and that tells me something. God is still calling out to himself Jews who love Jesus Christ and know him as their long-awaited Messiah. God is today keeping his promise. Listen to what Joshua said in Joshua 21, verse 45. He said, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That was so for Joshua and is also so today. When God makes promises, he keeps them. So when your hour of death comes and you wonder, are all the promises of Christ as good as they sound, you might remember Joshua 21 verse 45 and Romans 11, and you're going to say, God has never made a promise that he has not fulfilled. He is the promise keeper. He has kept all of his promises. I've given you four reasons why God has not abandoned the Jews. One, his spokesmen were all Jews. Two, his calling is irrevocable. Three, his dealings are constant. And four, his actions are observable. And to that list, let me add one more. Perhaps the most precious of the five, his methods are consistent. Look at Romans 10 verses 5 and 6. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. When God called his chosen remnant out of Israel, he called them not on the basis of works, but of faith. 
They didn't get there by law-keeping. They never did. They got there because God is merciful, and God had mercy on them. Grace is always undeserved favor. The remnant of Israel, just like the remnant of the Gentiles, is saved because of an act of mercy. And that's the message that is consistent throughout the entire Old Testament. From Abraham on, all of God's chosen people were chosen because of grace and mercy. God's methods are remarkably consistent. God will never break his promises. That means he's not done with Israel, and as I have argued, that also means that when he makes a promise to us today through Jesus, it is far more likely that the sun does not rise tomorrow than that his promises fail. He is the God of kept promises. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for what you have done in your own chosen people Israel. We thank you that today, even now, there is a remnant among your own people, and it speaks volumes of what you do to us today. For those of us who are Gentiles, we look at what you have done in Israel, and we are so secure in this knowledge. You are the promise keeper. Thank you, God, that we can count on you all the way to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. John, that was a great message today. Can I ask you a quick question, though, and maybe it's not an easy one, but why is there such a reluctance or a seeming reluctance to to share Christ with Jews? Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, some of the history of the relationships between Christians and Jews have, you know, been a difficult one. And so I think Christians have a lot to apologize to Israel for. I actually do. Uh, And we need to bear that in mind. The anti-Semitism that's been there in the church has left us that way. But to respond to anti-Semitism by saying, I'm not sharing the gospel, is an act of unkindness, I would say. Thanks so much, John. And join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Many Christians today, especially young adults, are confused about what the Bible has to say about sexual identity. Others feel unprepared when asked about their beliefs in regards to homosexuality, transgenderism, and the like. The most important question we can ask ourselves in the midst of the sexual revolution we're in is what does the Bible have to say about our sexuality and our identity? That's it. If we can answer that question clearly in a way that the next generation can understand and believe in, then, well, we've equipped them well to engage our broken world. This fall, our young adult ministry, In Doubt, is putting on its first In Doubt Live event all about sexual identity. The event is dedicated to offering the next generation clear biblical truth in regards to sexuality and identity. There'll be a great time of worship. Keynote speakers include Dr. John Newfeld of Back to the Bible Canada, leader of Ethos and young adult pastor Dave Johnson, Isaac Dagnall, leader of Endowed Ministries, and others to be announced. The evening will also include a Q&A forum, so come with your concerns and your questions. In Doubt Live Sexual Identity is happening on Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clova Theatre in Surrey. There's no cost, so join us, bring a friend, or make it an event for your young adult group. For event details, visit live.indoubt.ca. 
And if you don't live in the area, In Doubt Live will be presented on Facebook Live, so make sure you're following In Doubt on Facebook.